pray. Father, we praise you for this morning. We praise you for the beginning of this Christmas season when we get to reflect on the glory of your Son and the glory of the gift that you gave to us when you gave us your Son. So, Father, bless us now as we consider the greatness of his glory, the infinite nature of all of his perfect attributes, four of them in particular that we will see today. Oh, Lord, I pray that this would not just be a time of education, but it would indeed be education for exaltation. The learning of who Christ is from the Old Testament would cause us to worship him in spirit and in truth with power that would change us and cause us to love this world less, cause us to love the Lord Jesus more, loosen our roots from the soil of this world and plant them deeper in heaven, in Christ, in your word. Thank you, Father, for this time. Use it now for your glory and for our good, our joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, we will temporarily, at least for a few weeks, set aside our study of 1 Corinthians to, um, to look at this passage and then another next week, Christmas morning. Isaiah 9 is a passage that most unbelievers have heard, as well as Isaiah 7, which we will look at first, but we'll spend most of our time in Isaiah 9. Now... All you have to do is look at the morning paper or watch five minutes of your favorite news broadcast to get a feel for how bad things are in the government today. Corruption and mismanagement in Washington have resulted in soaring unemployment, weakening of the dollar, gas and food prices intolerably higher than they ought to be, Social Security headed for bankruptcy and a health care system that's become um, almost unaffordable for your average family. And if you think it's bad here, you need only to take a short trip to Europe to see how bad it is there. It's worse. Our awareness of the problems in government right now are heightened by the reality that this is an election year and everybody has their own ideas about what the problems are and how to fix them and who needs to be elected this coming election day. For many, the prospects of our country's future look very, very bleak. It seems that there's no way out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into, and frankly, there's nowhere to turn. And if all of that sounds bleak and depressing, Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) If it all sounds bleak and depressing, understand it is merely a thimbleful of the kind of difficulty the people in Israel experienced some 800 years before the birth of Christ. Their government had really let them down, unbelievably. So much so, in fact, that Isaiah was sent by God to announce that judgment was coming. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah, speaking to Judah, telling them, reminding them of their covenant with God, God's covenant with them, 
and showing them that they had forsaken their first love. They had forsaken this God, this covenant-keeping God who entered covenant with them alone. And they were announcing that Babylon, the reigning superpower of the day, was coming to attack, to conquer, and to destroy them. And the truly sad thing about that story was that the government in that day should have known better. I mean, unlike the government which, which we have, which we kind of made up our own system of government, right, on our own, but Israel had the divinely inspired plan to, for how to run a nation successfully. And they had God's law. All they had to do was follow the instructions. And they were complex, but they weren't impossible. And if they did, God promised to bless them and to ensure that Israel would flourish and would have a king on David's throne forever. But it wouldn't be. Because the leaders of Israel turned their back on God. They turned their backs on his word. And now judgment was imminent. And by the time Isaiah came on the scene, if you remember your... Um, your Jewish history. And by the time Isaiah came around, I mean, Assyria had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had had their sights set on Judah. In fact, Sennacherib came to Judah and surrounded Jerusalem and besieged it. You know what besieging is? You surround, an, you surround a city for what may be years until you starve them out. And in the meantime, you build what's called a siege ramp as best you can to make a way to, to get your army over the wall to conquer. And it would take years. And the, the people inside the city would starve to death. And Syria was doing that to Jerusalem. And yet God rescued them. Remember the story of Hezekiah? God rescued them. It's one of my favorite, kind of a funny text. Um... Hezekiah prayed. God sent the prophet to say, the Lord has heard your prayer. The angel's coming. The angel came and attacked Assyria. And the text says, when Assyria woke up, they were all dead men. <laughs> they all woke up dead. 180,000 of them. Was God going to judge Judah for their rebellion? Absolutely. This time, Isaiah came on the scene they had already witnessed the destruction of their sister, Israel, to the north. Nevertheless, the, the future leaders of Israel learned nothing from Israel's destruction. Nothing from Israel's destruction. Now imagine yourself, you live in Judah. You're not one of the rebels against God's law. You're one of his remnant. God always has his remnant. He always has had a remnant. Even before Israel... There was always Noah, there was always Abraham, there was always faithful men and women. Even in the days of Judah, uh, of Jesus in Judah, you find people like Simeon and, uh, uh, and others, the apostles, but there were very few. There was always a remnant, and you're part of the remnant. You're part of the remnant, and you're living in Judah 700 years before Christ. In fact, the idea of Christ coming is the furthest thing from your mind. You may not even know about it at all. 
Because until Isaiah wrote about this, until he wrote his book, his 66 chapters, uh, I, I seriously doubt that the people even had an understanding that Messiah was coming. And so you are part of the remnant and you are suffering because you're a part of a nation that God is condemning. And so for 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, it's Isaiah is hammering and hammering and hammering and hammering and hammering Judah. Haven't you learned anything from your sister's destruction? God is coming to bring the superpower of Babylon to destroy you if you don't repent. And they wouldn't repent. And they wouldn't repent. However, throughout those 39 chapters, God sprinkles in little promises. Not little promises, huge promises. But that would only apply to encourage the, the faithful. He wanted his faithful people to know, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you simply to be judged. There is a plan, a sovereign plan. And at the end of the plan, glory. So be faithful. You say, how do we know there were faithful people in Israel at the time? It's a good question. I got four answers. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's four. And then we have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. There's six. And I would submit to you that there were many who were the faithful remnant of Israel who were living in Judah at the time. All of these prophecies were coming. Would they experience the judgment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would they really be taken captive for 70 years? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of the first group to go to be taken prisoner. Yes, it would happen, just as God said, but that's not the end of the story. It's not the whole story, and it's not the end of the story. It couldn't be the end of the story, because no matter how faithless God's people are, God always remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Every promise he made is true, and every promise will be fulfilled for God's people. He cannot fail to fulfill his promises. Can you just let that sink in for a minute? He cannot fail. Is there anything God cannot do? Yes, he cannot sin, and he cannot fail to keep his promises. That's our hope. It's not our wish. It is our hope. It is our confidence. It is the rock, the bedrock upon which we stand. And the most important promise God ever made was the promise of a son. And so in the midst of the ensuing financial, social, geopolitical turmoil surrounding Judah, God sent the prophet Isaiah with a promise. And we find it first introduced to us here in chapter 7 and verse 14, a verse that is known by most people in the Western world, Christian and unchristian alike, because there are still remnants of biblical truth left in our Christmas celebrations. Um, we watched a, a movie this week as a family, and it was a Christmas movie. It was just a kind of a silly Santa Claus kind of movie, and, but it was kind of weird in the background to hear the Messiah being played. 
It's still there in remnant. It's still there kind of behind the scenes. The truth of God is there. So most people have heard this verse, and here's how it reads. This is Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What a promise. The promise was that one day, instead of allowing his people simply to suffer the consequences of the sin of their nation, their corrupt government, God himself would come to earth and make it right. He would come and make it right. He would be born of a virgin, and his parents would call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. God with us. God with us. Not God transcendent out there, some deistic God who wound up the top and let it flow. Not some God who is disconnected and unconcerned for our lives, but God with us. God here among us, God as one of us, and yet still God. And by the way, this promise was the same promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, which is historically known as the Proto-Euangelion, which means the first gospel. It's the first mention of the gospel in somewhat cryptic form when God told Adam and Eve, specifically to Eve, someday you will have a son and that son will crush the serpent's head. It's the same son. It's the same child. The promise was never nullified. It had been many, many generations since that promise was made. And yet here we are, Isaiah Reminding his faithful people, God's faithful people, the promise is still valid. That son is still coming. I've not forgotten. The son will come. One day a son of Eve would be born who would crush the serpent's head. He would be God in human flesh, Israel's redeemer, the savior of the world. What a promise. What a promise. And we learn more about this child in chapter 9. So flip one page to the right to chapter 9. In verses 6 and 7, the prophet ref- refers um, to some significant details about this coming son. He reveals some of his infinite attributes. We say that God is infinite in all his perfections. This son would be infinite in all of his perfections. The Lord Jesus Christ is infinite in all his perfections. And the prophet will give us four to ponder this morning, verses 6 and 7. Let's look at it together. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of David and over all of his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on even to forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is not wishful thinking. This is not hope that happens. The zeal of the Lord will make this happen. When we say we have hope as believers. It is not we have a wish. Our hope is built on the bedrock promises of God by which he makes a promise and says, the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so here we learn more about the identity and the purpose of this child called Emmanuel. More importantly, the prophet reveals some of the marvelous attributes of the person of Jesus Christ who would be the fulfillment of the promise of the coming son. So let's spend a few moments considering these things together. First of all, the child's identity. When we learn about the child's identity from this text, first we learn that the child would be a human baby. He would be son of man. He would be the son of man. Not in the technical sense that we find in Daniel chapter 7, but simply here, the son of a woman. He would be a human baby. It's difficult to get our minds wrapped around this, but let's try to let it sink into our souls this morning, just for a minute, that the creator of the universe, the creator of all that is, the creator, the one who spoke and everything that exists came into being, that creator in whom everything in the universe is contained. The one who, according to Psalm 113, has to humble himself, listen, he has to humble himself to look into the things that are in heaven. That same creator chose to become a human Infant baby. That's crazy. That is so amazing. It stretches our ability to even comprehend what is being said. Not just in this text, but all the texts that, that explain it in the New Testament as well. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine? I mean, given the choice... I wouldn't ever want to be a baby again, would you? I mean, I'm 47 years old. I got lots of things to do. I do lots of things every day. I enjoy life. I have freedom. I mean, I would never want to be a baby again. I mean, you can't do anything as a baby. You eat, you sleep, you cry, you do a couple other things. <laughs> That's it. I mean, can you imagine being, becoming a baby, giving up the freedoms, the power that you have to do what you will, to come and go, relatively speaking, as you please, to accomplish what you want, with limitations granted, but lots of freedom, lots of privileges to become a helpless absolutely dependent. If nobody feeds you, you die. 
kind of dependent. If nobody changes you, you get sick. That kind of dependent. I mean, where's the fun in that? I'd never give up my freedom to do as I please in favor of becoming an infant. But here's the thing. Jesus did. And his freedoms, his rights, his privileges were, listen, infinitely greater than mine. And he gave them up. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Keep your hand right there nestled in Isaiah chapter 9 for, we'll come back there in just a minute, but Philippians chapter 2. And here we read, starting with verse 5. Let's learn about Christ together, shall we? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? And now he's going to describe Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or a thing to be clung to, a thing to hang on to and not let go of, but emptied himself. This doesn't mean he stopped being God, but what, what it does mean is he let go of his rank, his privileges. All of the privileges, all of the status that he had as being the second person of the Trinity, can you imagine? As being the creator of heaven and earth, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It's one of the most Christological, Christologically important verses or texts in the whole Bible. And Paul says something very similar to this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The person who had all of the privileges of heaven chose for your sake, for my sake, to become a helpless babe. Beloved, I don't know about you, but this stretches the mental capacities of this pastor. I was studying this this week. I was digging through Burkhoff's systematic theology to get a grip on this better. And I found myself just sitting at my desk weeping. Glory. This is glory. The Almighty God who has to humble himself to look into the things of heaven, chose to be a baby for me. As Brent preached last week from John 3, 16, I hope you were here. If not, you need to get the recording and listen to it online. Here's John 3, 16. In the Greek, it says this. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his son the only one. That's glory. That doesn't do something to your heart. 
Oh, beloved, pray that God will change your heart. Just pray that God would soften your heart. Not to mention the fact that he was born to a no-name young couple who were homeless, friendless, and beyond the means to provide for themselves anything better than a pile of hay and a manger in a cattle stall of an overcrowded inn for a baby to be born? It's almost too much. It's almost too much to take in. He became one of us. He humbled himself to become a baby. Bruce Shelley, the author of Church History in Plain Language, writes this. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central theme the humiliation of its God. I love that. Christianity is the only major religion to have at its, as its central event the humiliation of its God. Now, I realize he was speaking, of course, about the crucifixion, but Jesus' humiliation did not begin in Jerusalem. It began in Bethlehem. It began in Bethlehem. For unto us a child is born. Second, and this promised child would not only be the son of man, a human baby, he would be the son of God. Notice back in chapter 9, verse 6, the prophet says not only that the child will be born, but that a son will be given. A son. But a son not born, a son given. This is someone else's son who's being given. Whose son is it? It is God's son. The only begotten, not the only made, not the only created, the only begotten, the only one of his kind. Unlike us, Jesus did not come into existence at conception. He's always existed. How long has he existed? How long has God existed? That's how long. He's God. God is eternal. He's infinite. He's infinite in all of his perfections. We, however, came into being at a, at a certain moment, at conception, but he has always existed from eternity. That's the point of the term incarnation. Incarnation means something to the effect of a, a person being revealed or a hidden being being personified. He has is, he is come out. He has come to a, point, to a place where he can be seen and known and to some degree understood. It is the incarnation. God came to earth. We say God incarnate or God manifest or God revealed. And Louis Burkhoff says, it is not possible to speak of the incarnation of one who had no previous existence. You could speak of his creation, you could speak of his being born, but you cannot speak of his incarnation if he didn't live before he was born. Jesus is, in fact, very God, a very God. He is infinite in all of his perfections, and he exists from eternity. This is no ordinary boy. This is not a candidate for president. 
This is not a shrewd politician or a human king. He is both son of man and son of God. This is his identity. This is his identity. But there's one more thing we need to understand about his identity that will also reveal his purpose. He's not just the son of man and son of God, but listen, he is king of kings. And he is lord of lords. Brent read that for us out of Revelation chapter 19. But the prophet Isaiah unpacks it for us a little bit telling us who this king of king is in terms of his purpose. What is his purpose? What will he do when he comes? And what has he done for us who are already under his rule as our king? Chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So here the prophet Isaiah looks far beyond the birth of this baby to a distant age when he will reign over a literal earthly kingdom that encompasses all the kingdoms of the world. You've got to understand that when God gave revelation to his prophets, he gave them pieces, but he didn't give them everything. The prophets didn't know everything. They didn't know, even know everything about the gospel. They didn't know everything about the Messiah. They knew he would be born. They knew he would reign. And so that makes sense when, when you read about the apostles, and Peter was always asking, Lord, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? We understand, Messiah, born, reign, born, reign. You've been born. And you've been doing all these miracles, showing yourself to be the Messiah. So are you about to, to reign? Is that going to happen today? Is it going to happen this week? We don't understand this whole thing about we have to go to Jerusalem so that the Gentiles can nail me to a cross and die. We, that, that doesn't compute so badly. Does that not compute? We're not even paying attention to that. Messiah reigns. Messiah reigns. Jesus, say it with me now. Messiah reigns. It was like two mountain peaks that from a distance look like they are together. Born, rain. And there's a great valley in between that the prophet couldn't see. Centuries of time. God's purposes for church history that were hidden. In fact, the prophets knew that there were things left out. The prophets knew that God wasn't giving them the total revelation all in one piece. They each got it. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Remember we looked at Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, knowledge comes to us bit by bit, piece by piece. Not going to be that way when the prophet comes. That's the way the prophets received it. And here's what the prophets would do. This is amazing. They knew they were being inspired by God when it was happening. And they would write down, they would write down what God wanted them to write. And then they would study what they themselves wrote to try to understand. Angels long to look into these things. And at the proper time and in the proper way, everything that God has wanted to be revealed is revealed, and yet there is still mystery. There's still mystery. But in that day, not the day of his first coming, but the day of his second, 
The government of the entire world will rest upon his shoulder. The Hebrew word for government here is literally dominion. And it has the idea, speaks of sovereign authority. He will rule. He will rule. He will literally be king, king of kings and lord of lords. He will be the reigning king above all other subservient kings. And he will be the reigning lord above all other subservient lords. For those of you who know him, his kingdom already rules your lives in an invisible way. Isaiah is talking about the day when his rule will be visible. But if you are a child of God, if you belong to Christ, you already live in his kingdom. You're already under his rule. He is our king. That's what makes the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension so astounding to us. Has there ever been such a king as the one who rules us? He rules our hearts. And what we learn from this passage about his future visible lordship is also true of his present invisible lordship over our lives. In fact, there are four dominant characteristics of his rule mentioned in this text. And they apply both ways, in the already context and in the not yet. The already is now. We live under his rule. The not yet is his future kingdom, which will indeed literally come. And there are four things. Number one, under his rule, no confusion. There's no confusion. Isaiah says, his name will be called. And by the way, let's just stop there for a minute name, his identity called, means announced or proclaimed. His name, his renown shall be proclaimed. His renown shall be proclaimed. And what it is worthy of renown, his name, that will be proclaimed is number one. He is wonderful counselor. Is there not two things? That is one thing. He's the wonderful counselor, wonderful counselor. When Messiah rules, he will, he will have real answers for the world's confusion. The difficulty surrounding modern Israel and the Palestinian state and the threat of nuclear Iran and the crisis of China, the world financial crisis, the health care issues, taxation, no matter what the issue, the Messiah, Messiah will have all the answers, all the answers. All wisdom. Remember, he is infinite in all of his attributes. Is he wise? He is infinitely wise. He's infinitely wise. And Jesus demonstrated this, by the way, when he was ministering in the world. Every time he turned around, somebody had a question for him to answer. And every time he was questioned, he gave an astounding answer. So much so that even, you remember that time, the Pharisees, they kept sending their guys, their underlings, to go and, and started up in the ranks of the guys who were going, trying to trick Jesus. And it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. I mean, they didn't realize who they were messing with. They were messing with the person who created them. They were, they were trying to take out the guy who created their own mind. And so they would come to him with these questions. And we read it and we go, wow, that's a really good question. Jesus is in trouble. Mayday, mayday. And Jesus just goes, tink, 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 gone. Got another one? Gone. 
I love that passage where some of the Pharisees who did that, they came and questioned Jesus, and Jesus answered them in such a way. The text first says, and from that moment on, they didn't question him anymore. And then they went back to the chief priest and the scribes, and, and the chief priest and scribe says, what went wrong? And the Pharisees said this, um, there is no one. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. You want to question him? You go undone. You can't trick him. You can't outwit him. The only way we're going to get him is to lie. Jesus had all wisdom. And those of us who have chosen to live under his authority now, <laughs> we find this to be true every day. God's word offers us everything we need for life and godliness. Nothing is left in, has been left out. When we have a problem, we know who to go to for answers. We don't go to the government. The government has its place. I'm not an anarchist. I'm not even a pacifist, I don't think. But when I have a problem, I don't go to the government. I go to my God. He is the wonderful counselor. When I need counsel, I go to his word. I go to his word. When we have problems... We know who to turn to for answers. We turn to God who has given us his word in a book. And every time we choose to do things according to his wisdom, we learn afresh that he truly is the wonderful counselor, the wonderful counselor. Under his rule, there is no confusion. You say, you don't understand my marriage. You're right. I don't. He does. And just as an aside, in our counseling ministry here at Calvary, where we use the scriptures alone for counseling, and sometimes a couple will come in. We don't only do marriage counseling, but every counselor center, counseling center primarily does marriage counseling. But we'll have couples come in and we listen to their story, and your first impulse is to go, oh my goodness, they need to go see a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> How do, you, how do you unravel that mess? And we've had couples come in and their issues seem so complex and so full of emotion and so tangled up and they were at their wit's end and the only reason they were coming was to get verification that it would be okay with God for them to divorce. After all, God wants me to be happy, right? I'm his child. And we pray and we search the scriptures a little bit. And what I've learned over the years in in counseling and ministering the Word of God personally to people's lives is there are really only a limited numbers, a limited number of ways to sin. Um, and whatever the problem is, the complexities, all of it, when you shake it out, everything falls into one of those categories. So you may have five, six, seven, eight, ten things to deal with. And you start bringing the word of God to bear. We typically tell married, uh, 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 married couples, if you'll let us counsel you, we'll pick, you pick, the top three things out of the 10 or 12 that you have 
that are so complex and so crazy in your life that are killing you. Pick the top three. We'll work on those top three. And I can almost guarantee when you start submitting to the rule of the wonderful counselor and those three things start getting dealt with, the other seven, eight, nine are just going to fall off the table. His counsel is so much better. We have people all the time who come to us and we try to get to know their story a little bit and they've been to counselor after counselor after counselor after counselor after psychiatrist and psychologist and drugs and medication and we bring the word of God to bear on their life and they say, we've never heard anything like this before. And we get Christmas cards from couples who write to us and say, praise God for you. We're not only still married, we're happier than we've ever been in our lives. And it's not because any of us are anything special. It's not. We're just mailmen. We deliver the message. We deliver the counsel. It's not our counsel. It's his counsel. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the one who can get into the heart and change it. And so for those of us who've chosen now to live under his authority, even now, we know what this is about. We turn to God. We turn to his word. And every time we choose to look to his wisdom, we learn afresh that he truly is the wonderful counselor. Under his rule, there's no confusion. There's rest. That's why Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden with this huge burden you're carrying around on your back. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest. Second, under his rule, there's not only no confusion, there's no chaos. Jesus is not only the wonderful counselor, he is, are you ready for this? He is mighty God. He is mighty God. The word mighty here, this is great. The word mighty literally means heroic. He's the hero. He's the guy who comes sweeping in at the last moment and rescues the one that he loves. He's the Superman of the Bible. And there is no kryptonite. He is the savior, the hero of all who believe. He's mighty God. He is the king with such unlimited power that he can accomplish all his holy will. Listen, it's great that uh, he has all wisdom. It's wonderful. But he doesn't have, if he doesn't have all power to go with the infinite wisdom, then he can accomplish nothing or very little. And you know what? That's the, kind of the state of our politicians today. They all think they have all wisdom. But because they don't have all power, they can't get anything done. That's not the way it is with this king. That's not the way it is with this king. He not only has all wisdom, he has all power. And this is where the failing of human government really becomes evident. Listen, if you think that the next guy we elect into office as the president of the United States is going to be our country's savior, you're in for a Serious disappointment. You're going to be sorely disappointed. 
because no man has the wisdom needed to unravel the Gordian knot that our political, economic, and social problems have become. And even if one of the current candidates had all the necessary wisdom, he wouldn't have the power to bring that wisdom to bear on all of the aspects of government and life that need to be changed. But that's not so with the Messiah. Beloved, I don't want to be too controversial here. I'm not a controversial guy. <laughs> What's funny about that? I'm just a poor, lowly pastor trying to make his way through the world. But here's what I want to say to you. Um, we need to be careful about how much time, effort, and money we put into attempting to bring about change in the government. Why? Because frankly, that's not the answer to our nation's problems. What America needs right now is not a return to the Constitution. What America needs now is a return to the gospel. The Constitution won't change anybody's heart. The Constitution is law. And you can pile law upon law upon law on the backs of lawless men, and they will always be lawless. And the more law you invent, the more tempted they will be to break it. Paul said, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And then suddenly, I wanted to covet. It's the way it works. The law becomes complicitous with sin. And so what's the remedy? You've got to have a changed heart. And the only way that happens is by miracle. Only the gospel has the power to change what really needs to be changed. Martin Lloyd-Jones once warned in England, he said, the church is largely wasting her time in talking politics and imagining that if you give people the Christian ethic and urge them to practice it, the problems of the world will be solved. It cannot be done. Regeneration is what is essential. God produces this final harmony again by regeneration and a new creation, a new man and a new world, new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's the only way it's going to happen. And so our primary strategy needs to be gospel. Gospel growth, gospel to the nations. We exist, say it with me, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. How do we do that? How do we get the excellencies of Christ to the nations? By the spread of the gospel. That's it. The way to replace chaos with the order it needs in this country. It's the same way we replace chaos with the order in the lives of individuals, namely by the power of the gospel. And all I'm saying here is let's make sure that our commitment to political issues is nowhere near our resolute and passionate concern and commitment to see lives changed by the gospel. Can I just give you a warning? I know there are many Christians who are all wrapped up in the political thing and that's fine if your priorities are right. If the gospel is really the main thing in your life and you are living the gospel, living the gospel, living and preaching the gospel in your political actions, then that's fine. But here's what happens many, many times. 
is a person who is not, they're Christian, but they're not being faithful with the gospel. They find politics to be an easier way to salve their conscience that they're doing something to help the world. And so they, it's easy to talk about your candidate. It's easy to talk about changing politics. And that feels good. I'm doing something. I'm active. And the main thing over here is the gospel about which you are ashamed. But your conscience feels better because you're involved in the political scene. And politics then just becomes an excuse for not being gospel-centered being faithful with the gospel. Beloved, don't, don't be like that. Don't make your political opponents the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're your mission field. They are people there for whom Christ died. You've got to find them. There are people there who need to hear the gospel, every one of them. If you can't do that, and be politically involved at the same time, then get out of politics. I'm not anti-government. I think our nation is the greatest nation in the world right now. I've been to a lot of other nations. I love coming home to the good old USA. I love this country. I love Boy Scouts of America. I don't have any problem saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I love this country. But you know that? But you know what? I I don't love this country more than I love God. And I will not allow love for country to trump my love for Jesus and his gospel. All I'm saying is let's make sure our commitment to the political issues does not extend beyond our commitment to the gospel. When you came to Christ, God replaced your chaos with order. And one day he will come as the hero of the world who comes in infinite power and wisdom to radically change the world's chaos into divine harmonious order. Jesus is not only the wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. And under his rule, there's no confusion. There's no chaos. Third, under his rule, this one's great, I love this. I borrowed this outline from someone else just because it's so good. There is no complexity. There is no complexity. Part of the reason it's so difficult to solve the problems that we face in our country is because there's, there's such complexity. I mean, some of the bills that have been put up through Congress, nobody's even read. And to read them is, is to, to, to not understand them. There's so much red tape, so much bureaucracy. It's nearly impossible to get anything done. But this will all change under Messiah's rule. He requires no support structure, no competing parties, no checks and balances. He shoulders the government all by himself. That's what the text says. And his name will be called, let's see, verse 6, a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulder. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will carry it all, and he will do it by himself. There's no complexity here. He's wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is eternal father. Now the focus here is on God's eternality. The idea that he knows the end from the beginning. The open theists are wrong who say that God only knows what is knowable and the future is not knowable 
because man creates the future by making his decisions. That's heresy. And I would suggest to you just read the book of Isaiah in which we're, we're studying now. Around Isaiah 40 and in the 40s. And you will find God defining himself by the ability of declaring the end from the beginning. In fact, he challenges all the false gods and all the false prophets. You tell us the end from the beginning and then we will believe that you are a God. But I am God and there is no one like me. I am God and there is no other. Declaring from ancient times that which will come. That's what it means to be God. That's what it means to be God. He is eternal. He is the eternal Father. The author of Hebrews says this, You, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He's eternal. He's not just eternal, he's eternal father. And beloved, this is where your personal rule, uh, 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 relationship under the rule of this king, it's wonderful. Because this God who's the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, this son is also eternal father. This is not a term that Israel was familiar with in the Old Testament. He was Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, yes, but he was not known generally as Father. And it was a little bit shocking to the Pharisees when Jesus started calling God Daddy. But that's who he is. And the pastor who used to preach in this pulpit before me, Pastor Jim, one of my dearest friends, I used to love praying with him. Because he'd always go to prayer and the first word out of his mouth would be, Daddy, he's your father. And some of you, you look back and you say, my father was a horrible father. He may have been. But this father is the perfect father. And if you belong to him, then you can be absolutely secure in his love, his care, his concern. What the Messiah will do for the world when he comes, he will do for you now. He's the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. And he is your forever father. The point is nothing is too difficult for the creator, sustainer of everything. Eternal, he's the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the one who declares the beginning, the end from the beginning, and everything is always and has always been under his sovereign rule. Jesus is not confused by what's happening in our world today. Are you ready for this? He planned it. He exists outside of time. He sees the whole world like the, the binding of a book. There's the beginning. There's the end. There's all the details in between. I don't have any problem prophesying the future because there it is, right there. God's not guessing. He sees it. And in a sense, he's there. He's timeless. He's eternal. That's what it means. He's the creator of time. 
And so Jesus isn't confused about what's happening in the world today. He is absolutely in control of it, and there's purpose to it. There's meaning here. And I would suggest that one of the purposes, one of the 10,000 purposes God has for us right now in our nation with all the confusion and all the complexity is this. He wants us to feel the weight of our dependency upon him. I'm thinking of Psalm I can't find the verse. The central verse in the Bible is simply this. Do not trust in man. Trust in God alone. If you counted backwards from the front and forward from the beginning and landed on the center verse of the Bible, do not put your trust in man, but in God alone. I think that's what God wants us to learn. But so many of us are not learning it and perhaps won't learn it until he comes. Jesus isn't confused by it. He's planned it. He's ruling over it. And in the end, he will bring it to conclusion at exactly the right time to accomplish his purposes. In his kingdom, there's no confusion. There's no chaos. There's no complexity. And finally, in his kingdom, there's no conflict. Watch this. He is the prince of peace. When Jesus was born, the angel said this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. We like to stop there. Peace on earth. Peace among men. But it doesn't stop there. Among men with whom he is pleased. It's not peace for everybody. It's peace with those with whom he is pleased. The others don't get peace. They get war. You remember what they said, what they called the First World War after it was done? They called it, you remember? The war to end all wars. And then we had the Second World War. <laughs> and it was far worse, bigger weapons, atomic weapons even. I'm telling you, the only way there will ever be peace when hearts are changed and the only way hearts are ever going to change globally is for Messiah to come. Once again, this is the peace that is owing not to political strategy or manipulation, but the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Historically, there's never been peace on earth. Nations have always warred against nations. Kingdoms have always warred against kingdoms. But whenever someone yields their lives to the Savior, God's peace comes in like a flood. And not only the peace that passes all understanding, that sense of peace that we get, that's real, it's subjective, but it's part of our relationship with God, yes. But not only that, but the other peace, the peace between me and you, the peace between two people who should be at war with one another, it's that peace. It is the third fruit of the Spirit, peace. Peace. This is the effect the Prince of Peace has on individual lives and their relationships with others. But it will also be the effect the Prince of Peace will have upon the whole world when he comes. There will finally be peace. 
Not only that, but his government and his peace, watch this, will grow and expand for all eternity. Verse 7, we'll just read it. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What does that mean? It means this, for eternity, it will forever and ever get better and better. That's what he means. When the Messiah comes, when his kingdom is established, there is a new heaven, new earth. When all is done, it's not done. It just gets better and better forever and forever. And don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that day? That's the great promise. And so you see, the message of Christmas is more than simply news about a baby born in Bethlehem. It's about Messiah. The one who came to reconcile sinners to God and the one who will come again to set up his kingdom to rule forever and ever. I think this is an appropriate message for this year, don't you? Because the failings of our government reveal the great need we have for Messiah to come and fulfill his promise to carry out or to carry the government upon his shoulders. And all of it. And more than that is a call to every individual who hears to surrender your claim to ruling your own life. How's that working out for you? Turn over the reins to this one who is the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. He delights to give his peace freely to all who will come to him on his terms in simple, childlike faith. If the hope of mankind is in our own self-governance, we're in serious trouble, folks. We need to realize that the difficulties we face as individuals and families and nations are designed by God to help us feel our inadequacy for making life work in this sinful world. I know about you, but I had circumstances this week that were so far outside of my control. It made me feel it. It drives me to prayer. It drives me to worship. God, I have no control over these things. I can fret, I can worry, I choose not to. Because you are my God. And so there we have it. We need the rule of God's Son over our lives now. And we will get it someday over all the nations. And we must remember this that the failing of human government only serves to point us to the promise of the perfect government that will one day rest on the shoulders of Christ alone. He is our hope. He is our confidence. He is our joy this Christmas season. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It's always been a wonderful text, a glorious text for those who believe it. And pray, Father, that you would grant faith and repentance to all who hear, that they would embrace fully, and for those of us who know you more fully, you who are indeed our King. And so we praise you and we give you thanks now for it all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.